0: Hey, my name is Neil Rapley. I'm a researcher at Book of Mormon Central. I had a chance to sit down and answer some questions from our Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. We wanted to share these answers here as well and invite you to join us on Facebook to learn about more great resources to help with your Come Follow Me study this year. Again, that's the Facebook group, Come Follow Me Lessons, Teach, Learn, Share. Now, I hope you enjoy. All right. how is everybody doing this uh, lovely, well, it's lovely here in Utah, I don't know where you all are, but this is a lovely uh, Friday afternoon for me right now. Uh, I hope you're all doing well. Um, Gonna go ahead and uh, do your uh, come follow me questions for Mosiah 1 through 3 right now. Uh, As usual though, before I dive in, just want to uh, make sure I get that disclaimer out there, the answers given in this video do not represent the official opinion of The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, Book of Mormon Central, or the Come, Follow Me, Teach, Learn, Share Facebook group. Anyone who wants to has every right to disagree with what I have to say. I don't care. Uh, And since they are somewhat off the cuff, they don't really represent my official views. Either I reserve the right to uh, change my mind uh, if I ever learn more or dig into this, or maybe you convince me in the comments or something, though... uh, you know whatever may uh happen or transpire um with that said, let's go ahead and get started here uh the first question I'm gonna look at here is from uh Javier uh Aragon, and I'm sorry if I'm mispronouncing anybody's names uh really i am <laughs> I, I'm not perfect at that uh and I get it I understand it's annoying my name gets my last name at least gets mispronounced all the time, so anyway uh. I apologize. But uh, Javier here asks Does the original manuscript use any punctuation? Um, and this is actually uh, more of a general Book of Mormon, overall Book of Mormon question. Uh, and I usually wouldn't uh, address it uh, in something like this because I'm looking for questions specifically about Mosiah 1 through 3. Uh, but I am going to talk about it just a little bit because it does give me a chance to mention um, some things you might not know about uh, the original and the printer's manuscript. Uh, it, such as the fact that we actually do not have all of the original printers or all of the original manuscript. Pardon me. We do not have all of the original manuscript. And in fact, for this portion that we're studying right now, Mosiah one through three, we do not have any of this in the original manuscript. Uh, we only have about 28% of the original manuscript and, uh, we have, uh, a lot of the original manuscript for the small plates, uh, especially, uh, from first Nephi through Enos. We have not all of it, but a lot of that content in uh, in the original manuscript. Then we have portions of Alma, Helaman, Third Nephi, and Ether, but none of the Book of Mosiah has survived. So um, we don't actually know what the uh, original manuscript is like for this portion of the Book of Mormon because we don't have it. Uh, with that said, uh, we do have the printer's manuscript for this, and that's a copy of the original that mostly Oliver Cowdery made, but there's some handwriting from a few other scribes. Uh, but mostly Oliver Cowdery made this, uh, a copy that they used to send to the printer so they wouldn't lose the original. Joseph Smith was kind of learning from his mistake with the lost 116 pages. Um, and so we have almost all of the printer's manuscript, even though we've, we only have, uh, a smaller portion of the original manuscript. Um, neither the portion of the original manuscript that we have, nor any of the printer's manuscript Uh, originally had any punctuation, or maybe like there was like a period or two throughout the whole 400 plus page manuscript, almost 500 page manuscript. Uh, But for the most part, there's no punctuation in either manuscript except punctuation markings that were added by John Gilbert, the typesetter. Um, So for Mosiah 1 through 3 specifically, like I said, we do not know exactly what the original manuscript looked like. Hypothetically, it could be this really unique portion where there was punctuation, but that's very doubtful. Uh, everything we have from the original manuscript says there was no punctuation on any of it, um, and the copy we have in the printer's manuscript for this portion, no punctuation original to it. Uh, like I said, John Gilbert comes in and adds markings later. Uh, and so it's unlikely there was punctuation in the, in this portion of the original manuscript. Uh, that said, um, we're just gonna go ahead and uh, now dive into some questions not quite, uh, in this section, but, but related enough, uh, because they're kind of looking for what's missing here, which is kind of fun. Uh, Ben Miller, uh, asked, uh, for more info on the lost chapters of Mosiah. And if Mosiah is named after, uh, if the Mosiah that we know about is named after the first King Mosiah, Benjamin's father, uh, as far as being named after him, uh, yes, probably. And in fact, It might even be a throne name. He might've adopted the name Mosiah when he became king. And we'll actually get to throne names, uh, with another question, a little way, uh, ways down. It's probably that he's named after his grandfather. I guess we can't really know 100% for certain, but, uh, the way, uh, to, to give people background who may not know what Ben is talking about here, uh, the way the book of Mosiah starts, uh, is really weird, uh, (laughs) it doesn't start the way any of the other books in the Book of Mormon do, which are clearly starting at the beginning. Uh, It kind of seems like we're in the middle of something when we start the Book of Mosiah. And in fact, it's kind of weird that the first king we have in this book is Benjamin, uh, when all the other books, the first main author, the first main leader you have is the person the book is named after. Uh, Even in like the Book of Helaman, actually mostly follows the... uh, Mostly tells the stories about Helaman's sons, Lehi and Nephi, uh, but it's named Helaman because Helaman is the first uh, person uh, who, who is writing and speaking in well, not really writing because it's Mormon's abridgment, but he's the first uh, prophet in that book. Very briefly, though, and then he's gone. Uh, so usually, the first main person in the book is the name, the person the book is named after. So why is this the Book of Mosiah when it starts with Benjamin? And uh, why is it starting like we're in the middle of something? Uh, Well, the answer is uh, most likely there was a part of the book of Mosiah that got lost with the lost uh, 116 pages. Um, And some evidence for this is actually found in the printer's manuscript, which I just explained what that was, uh, because the chapter numbering there initially uh, labels uh, Mosiah 1 as Mosiah 3. And then it scribbles out, uh, Oliver Cowdery comes and scribbles out the other two uh, Roman numerals. It's marked in in three in Roman numerals. And uh, he scribbles those out and makes it just chapter one. So it seems that there were maybe uh, one or that there were maybe two chapters preceding this. Uh, there's actually a little bit of debate about whether there was just one or two or how many chapters there were, uh, which I won't get into right now for various reasons. It's kind of technical, but... Uh, the point is we are missing part of the Book of Mosiah, um, and there are really only uh, two resources I'm aware of off the top of my head, at least, that uh, provide much of a detailed exploration as to what may have been in uh, in that portion of the Book of Mosiah uh, that we don't have. Uh, one is Don Bradley's book, The Lost 116 Pages, Reconstructing the Book of Mormon's Missing Stories, which was published by Greg Colford Books just at the end of last year um, in uh, 2019. And uh, he covers the reign of the first Mosiah in chapters 14 and 15 of that book. Uh, Some of the material he covers in there uh, is uh, available online in his uh, Fair Mormon presentation from 2012 called Piercing the Veil. Temple worship in the last 116 pages, uh, which you can get online at the Fair Mormon uh, website. I think it's also in the Book of Mormon Central archive. I forgot to double check that before uh, coming down to uh, record, though. Um, but the point being, uh, there are uh, he, he's got some really interesting insights as to uh, what the book, what what the missing portion of the Book of Mosiah may have said about. The reign and uh, experiences of the first King Mosiah, who is probably the person the book was named after. Like I was saying, usually the first prominent person is who who gets the book named after them. Uh, And in this case, it was probably the first Mosiah who we are pretty much missing all our stories about now. Um, The other source uh, of uh, some ideas as to what This may this portion may have said about um, about the first uh, the first Mosiah is uh, Brant Gardner's book. Labor diligently to write the ancient making of a modern scripture. Uh, This was actually published online serially through the Interpreter website. It is uh, the entirety of Interpreter Volume Thirty Five. So if you go to the Interpreter website, look up Volume Thirty Five, and then you're looking for Chapter Six of Brant Gardner's book where he's talking about uh the lost 116 pages and uh talks about all different parts of the lost 116 pages including what was potentially in the early part of the book of Mosiah. and uh you should probably just be aware that uh don bradley and brant gardner are not 100% in agreement uh, on this stuff um <clears throat> i know that brant in particular brant gardner is uh, somewhat skeptical of some of the things that don bradley has uh, has done uh, with with uh, the stuff but you know, I think both are worth checking out. I um and a, I'm a really big fan of Don Bradley's book. I'm also a really big fan of uh, of all the work that Brant Garner does. So, I would just encourage you check out both and uh, you know, decide for yourself who you think is right. But point being, both of those resources are going to give you some ideas as to what we're missing uh in the Book of Mosiah and what what we maybe uh what what we're maybe missing specifically about that first King Mosiah. Uh, that uh, we've lost most of our stories and most of our information about. Um, And then this is technically getting us into Mosiah 1, but also is actually going to throw us back uh, into that uh, missing speculative section here. Uh, But Michael Christensen asked, in Mosiah 1, 15 through 17, we learned that Mosiah, the father of Benjamin, had taken the Liahona with him, as well as the other artifacts, the plates, the sword of Laban, uh, do you suppose that Mosiah made use of the Leahona in leading his exodus to Zarahemla? Uh, again, I would refer you to both Don Bradley and Brant Gardner, see what they have to say about this. I actually, um, between the two, I'm not remembering anything from Brant Gardner specifically on this topic, uh, though he may have mentioned it because I can't, uh, I can't recall, um, I know Don Bradley, uh, has some really interesting ideas, uh, specifically in relation to the use of the Liahona during the reign of King Mosiah. Um, and he's actually drawing on a, uh, there's a late secondhand source, um, that's somewhat garbled, uh, where, uh, Fayette Latham is talking about an interview he had with Joseph Smith senior in 1830. Uh, But uh, the account itself is coming from 1870, I think. I don't know the exact year off the top of my head. Um, And so, you know, there's maybe some questions about the source that we need to be uh, taking into consideration. But I think Don does a really good job working with this source. And uh, he argues um, that uh, based on information in the source plus information that we have in the Book of Mormon, uh, the, the, the subtle textual clues we have there... He argues that yes, Mosiah 1 was using the Leahona for uh to lead the people out of the land of Nephi and to the land of Zarahemla, but he also suggests that it actually stopped working along the way. Um, and the reason he suggests it stopped working is because it what it actually was leading them to was not ultimately Zarahemla, but rather to the Jaredite interpreters. And when they found the interpreters, uh the interpreters effectively replaced the leahona uh as a means of learning the lord's will and uh uh gaining revelation that way and so then the leahona stopped working and i i'm just kind of trying to summarize don's ideas you should definitely check it out uh his uh either his book uh, in fact his book is going to be the the best way to get what exactly what he thinks um Uh, His most recent thinking and most detailed uh, argument for it uh, is going to be in the book. But uh, that does cost money. I apologize. I can't uh, I can't make everything available for free as much as we are trying to do that here at Book of Mormon Central. Uh, But there is um, he talks about this in his fair presentation that I mentioned earlier, piercing the veil uh, 2012 fair conference presentation. Uh, I haven't done a side by side comparison to see how much uh, Don has further developed or uh, maybe how much has maybe changed about his views on that particular issue uh, between those two sources. Uh, so if you're using the fair presentation, I don't know how different that is from, from what he later published in his book. Uh, but uh, both of them are are great resources for getting an idea of, uh, of at least what Don Bradley thinks about the Liahona being used uh, during that portion uh, with, uh, with Mosiah the first. Um, all right. Uh, next question is from, uh, Deborah Cerveny or Cerveny. I don't know. Uh, so King Benjamin instructed his son to gather the people throughout the land, uh, at the temple on the morrow. And she's quoting from, uh, Moroni or excuse me, Mosiah 1, uh, 10 right now. Uh, how could Mosiah have possibly accomplished this overnight? communications and transportation being what they were in those days. So this is a good question. Um I think it's useful to keep in mind for one thing and and I'm going to talk about this a little bit more in connection to a different question. Uh but uh, this is likely a planned uh, event that's that's been known about in advance. It's probably a festival occasion um when uh, the people were many, many of the people, at least, would have been expecting to gather together at the temple uh, anyway. It's likely that uh, uh, they maybe wouldn't have known specifically that that uh, Benjamin was planning to um, appoint his heir on this particular occasion uh, and that there was going to be a new king appointed, but they probably were already planning to gather. So the proclamation that Mosiah uh, that, that's supposed to be sent out to notify people to gather so that they can witness the king bring, being, uh, you know, notice, know that Mosiah is going to be proclaimed King. They're going to receive a new name. This kind of stuff would have been kind of new, but they would have known or been planning to gather already. It's possible that this kind of advanced proclamation was somewhat of a limited circulation kind of thing where it was just going out to maybe some of the heads of the other noble families, Uh, people who maybe would be expected to get some heads up that this is what's going to happen at tomorrow's meeting kind of thing. That may be uh, the extent of what the proclamation was meant to do. Um, But it's also possible that this is reflective of the size of the Nephite kingdom at this time. Uh, We really don't have any indication that there's more than one major population center besides, you know, basically right now the only place we know that people within King Benjamin's purview within his rulership live is Zarahemla. We don't have evidence of a lot of other or or any other population centers at this time. Later, uh, particularly during the reign of the judges, we see that there are several other cities that are kind of under Zarahemla's domain, but we don't have any evidence for that right now. So um, at this point in time, the Nephite kingdom may not be anything more than Zarahemla itself and its outlying areas. Uh, we do know, of course, about the Zenith, uh, colony that left, but all the evidence we have about them, which we get later, uh, when, uh, we learn about Zenith and King Noah and Limhi, those guys, all the evidence we have from them is they're pretty independent of Zarahemla. The people in Zarahemla don't even know what happened to them. They have to later send out, uh, a delegation to kind of try and find out, hey, what's going on with those guys. And, uh, in fact, all our evidence kind of seems to indicate that, um, they are more under the domain and purview of Lamanite overlords rather than the people at Zarahemla. So, again, we don't have any evidence that King Benjamin's domain involves anything more than Zarahemla and its immediate environs. So, uh, this would kind of suggest that Zarahemla is more or less a city-state at this time, and uh, the exact size of a city-state can vary, obviously, Um, but uh, for the most part, uh, historically speaking— uh, city states typically do not, uh, expand much larger than, uh, a one day's journey from the capital, uh, from, from the, the city at the center of the state. So they're usually, um, like I said, a a large city state, you can actually reach everyone within the domain, uh, with messengers, at least obviously Mosiah himself couldn't personally reach everybody within a day, but through the means of, of, uh, of messengers, you actually could get your message out to everybody within a day. Now, granted you still need maybe two days at least to, you know, one day to get notice out to everybody and then another day to get everybody, uh, gathered in. So, um, so this would actually maybe suggest this isn't a large city state. Zarahemla is probably a, a relatively modest city state if they can manage to, uh, reach everybody um, within half a day or less so that there's enough time for them then all to uh, be there by the next day. Um, So anyway, those are uh, again, I would suggest it it's possible. It's actually just going to heads of of noble lineages right within Zarahemla itself. And the population at large was already expecting to gather. But it's maybe also indicative that the population at large isn't actually that large right now. We're just mostly sticking with a, a small city-state around Zarahemla. Everyone in the population can be reached within uh, a half a day or so. Um, all right, uh, going into Mosiah 2 now, we had a question from Russell Sagendorf, or, or Sagendorf, excuse me. Uh, Mosiah two six, I'm curious, that were told the, that families gathered in their tents with the door facing the temple. Was it typical at speeches to set up tents or was this a unique occasion, maybe weather related, uh, for example, uh, we actually have talked about this in a know why at book of Mormon central, uh, um, titled why did Nephites stay in their tents during King Benjamin's speech? Um, and it's, uh, it's at the book of Mormon central, uh, website, book of Uh, The uh, short version of the answer is that uh, in the Israelite festival calendar, there is actually what's called the Feast of Tabernacles or the Feast of Booths, where the people would all gather together and then stay in uh, little booths or tents, uh, maybe huts is a better word. They're just, they're they're temporary uh, dwellings, and um, they would be built specifically for this occasion, and the people would all gather and stay in them for eight days and uh, witness and, and watch and participate in uh, the different ceremonies related to the Feast of Tabernacles, um, which is called the Feast of Tabernacles because of the little tabernacles or, or tents or booths or whatever that they would be staying in. Um, and so that's most likely the reason, that's what most scholars think is the reason why the Nephites are gathering in tents is that this is probably happening in association with that, that festival occasion. Um, and again, you can read more about that in, uh, the Noah I mentioned, uh, moving on to Mosiah three, uh, Clay Cook asked, Benjamin uses the term atoneth three times in his speech at the temple. Uh, yet atonement is a purely English word with an etymology from the 16th century. Is this an example of Joseph interacting with the text? What may have been the term Benjamin used? Um, which he admits is probably unknowable, and of course that's true. But yes, I do have some guesses. We'll get to that. I have one guess, actually. Um, I think, uh, just to uh, clarify real quick, though, as translated into English, Benjamin uses atone or atonement, if, uh, you know, you want to count that. Atone, atoneth, atonement, some variation on that. He actually uses it seven times. Uh, And the English word actually goes back a little earlier. It goes back to the 14th century, Uh, as at least an adverb, um, tonen in uh, very, very early English, basically meant in accord. Uh, It's literally just at plus one, right? Um, Bringing something at one, reconciling it together. Um, It has some potential Latin precedents in, uh, now I actually took Latin in school, but uh, I have not, I, I don't pronounce Latin out loud regularly, but adunere is, uh, uh, appears to be the form it takes, which basically means unite. And it's the form of the preposition ad plus unum, which is one. Uh, and so it's kind of the same idea at one, uh, adunere, uh, in Latin. So, so it's not a purely English word. There is some precedent for it in antiquity in, uh, in Latin, at least. Uh, now notions of, uh, Something being united or brought together or reconciled uh, certainly aren't unknown in other languages, uh, even though they're not etymologically related to the word atone or atonement, of course. In Hebrew, uh, you know, in the Hebrew Bible, we have the word atonement all over the place uh, in English translations. Um, And the word that's usually translated as atonement there is kippur, um, including uh, the Jewish holiday Yom Kippur, which uh, is often translated as uh, day of atonement. Uh, and so that would be, again, my guess is that it's something related to that Hebrew word, uh, Kippur, um uh, that's being translated as atone and atoneth and atonement here. Um and in fact, Yom Kippur, or the day of atonement, happens in close association with the Feast of Tabernacles that I just mentioned. Uh, it's the same kind of holiday season that uh, those things are going on, and there are actually Day of Atonement connections with Benjamin's speech as well, um, including the, this repetition of the word atone and atonement uh, seven times, which is the same number of times sacrificial blood would be sprinkled on the altars on the Day of Atonement. So uh, that's in Noai number 82. You can learn more about that there. Noai number 82. Why does King Benjamin emphasize the blood of Christ? Uh, but yeah, I think uh, the word atonement here is just the English approximation of uh, Kippur or whatever word the Nephites at that point were using for uh, for this Hebrew concept of Kippur, atonement, uh, uh, reconciliation, and so forth. Um. Matthew Street asks a question about Mosiah 3.8. I know Mary, the mother of Jesus Christ, was an important and great woman, but why does the angel briefly mention her? Uh, what was the importance that King Benjamin and his people should know her name? Uh, and are there similar recorded texts outside the Book of Mormon that mention her name before her birth? Uh, I'm not aware of any other pre-Christian texts that identify the mother of, uh, of the Messiah as uh, being named Mary. So, uh, to my knowledge, the Book of Mormon is entirely unique in that respect. Uh, as for why she's named, uh, you know, again, it's always speculative. We don't know for sure, but there's some interesting, uh, ideas here that, uh, get talked about in, uh, a Know Why we have, and also a blog post that I recently wrote. So I'm going to talk about a couple ideas and I'm actually maybe going to end up bringing them together in some way, but, uh, The first one I want to talk about is, uh, an Egyptian practice. Uh, well, it's actually a practice in a lot of different cultures, but the Egypt practice in particular is relevant here. Um, in Egypt, when a new Pharaoh ascended to the throne, uh, he was given five names or titles specifically five names. Um, and some scholars think this practice was actually followed in Israel as well. And in fact, uh, the famous, uh, passage from Isaiah that we always recite at Christmas time and apply to the Messiah, he shall be um, for unto us, a child is born unto us. A child, uh, is given and, uh, he shall be called wonderful counselor, the mighty God, the Prince of peace. Uh, I might be jumbling some of those, uh, the order there, but that passage is believed to be related to this Egyptian practice of giving five names specifically because it lists out five names for the, uh, coming m- Messiah, the coming anointed one, um, and, uh, so, so some, like I said, some, some scholars think this was a similar practice in Israel. Uh, lots of other cultures are giving new names and new titles to Kings when they ascended the throne. I mentioned earlier, it's possible the name Mosiah itself is a throne name for, uh, Benjamin's son in order to hark back to his uh, grandfather, uh, the first Mosiah. Um, so this is a common thing. And in, in fact, it's absolutely being practiced. In the, in the only cultures for the new world that we have ancient writing for that we can read with, uh, which is in Mesoamerica, we have evidence of, of throne names being given to, uh, to people, uh, you know, the Maya people and things like that as well uh, for their kings. So this is a very widespread thing, but the specific five names is, uh, is important here because in Mosiah 3.8, where we get the name Mary, uh, there are specifically four names or titles given for Christ. Uh, there's Jesus Christ the Son of God, the Father of heaven and Earth, the creator of all things from the beginning. and then we get a fifth name that his mother would be called Mary. So uh, so it seems Mary's name is actually being included here to get to the number five. Uh, and we talk about that in uh, that's in, in a No on Book of Mormon Central a Noah number 536. Why did Benjamin give multiple names for Jesus at the coronation of his son Mosiah? Uh, so kind of what happens is this is, this is during the coronation of Mosiah and, uh, rather than give the five names to the new King, as would be expected, Benjamin is reminding his people who their true divine or heavenly King, as he says, um, uh, really is by giving the five names or five titles of Christ instead. Um, now that might still beg the question, why include the name Mary rather than not just give another one of the many titles we know of for Christ uh, it, you don't need to throw in the name Mary to get to five different titles you could give uh for uh, for Jesus Christ um and that's you know uh certainly an interesting uh question I think the fact that Mary is included rather than another title for Christ um is uh something quite significant in that it elevates the importance of Mary in a really significant way right and uh, maybe part of it is because, you know, one of those titles is son of God. So it mentions his father. And, uh, the idea is to bring his mother into, uh, into this, uh, royal title as well of, of providing the five names. Uh, but actually, uh, this is actually where I think something from ancient America can come into play here in possibly explaining this. And again, this is just a possibility that's out there. Um, it's something I talked about in the blog post that I shared in the group earlier this week about uh King Benjamin's speech within a, a context of Maya kingship and some of the practices we know about what they're doing. If the Nephites are within that uh, context, and again, we don't know that for sure, but it's a possibility. Um, it's interesting to note that Maya kings, some Maya kings at least, actually bore the title Mother of the Gods. Um, and so in light of what Benjamin is doing and getting giving titles of the true divine king, uh it's not surprising that since kings in in his in, in this surrounding culture were claiming to be the mother of the gods or the mother of God uh, it's not surprising that he would maybe want to intru- include uh, the true name of the true uh, mother of God in uh, in his divine titles that he's giving um, his divine names and titles that he's giving for the true divine King so uh, that's maybe a possibility for why that name in particular in particular, gets included. Um, But again, all speculation. But I hope it was interesting. Uh, Brad Hudson uh, asks a question about Mosiah 3.10. It says that Christ died that he might bring about a righteous judgment. Why was Christ's death necessary for righteous judgment when God is already perfectly righteous? Great question. Uh, I don't know. Uh, I feel... Obviously, all my answers are pretty speculative. Sometimes Uh, there's rarely a straightforward answer right in the Book of Mormon or else you wouldn't be asking these questions because I know you guys can all read just fine. Um, I feel particularly uh, reticent to offer speculative theological uh, answers, though, uh, rather than uh, things that are kind of based on history or culture or whatever. Um, But nonetheless, uh, you know, take this all with a grain of salt. But there are two thoughts that I have on this. Um, One is that I think all things in verse 10 is not just referring to what's mentioned in verse 10. I think we should probably take it to mean all the things he just described about the coming Messiah uh, in verses 5 through 10. Uh, So not just his dying, but actually his coming down to mortality, his suffering of all the things that it talks about him suffering in verse 7 in particular— temptations, pain of body, thirst, fatigue, hunger, all of that that's listed there. I think all of that is part of the all things that are being talked about in verse 10 that enable Christ to judge with righteous judgment. Um, And the reason I say that is because I think his mortal experience and his suffering in particular of mortal foibles, right? Uh, Of moral weak, mortal, not, not moral weaknesses, but mortal weaknesses, hunger, hunger, pain, uh, physical pain, right? Pain of body, Um, all of this stuff, uh, temptations, right? He suffered all of this as a, you know, as part of his own experience here in mortality that enables him to fairly or righteously judge us for our shortcomings due to these um, various things that beset us in mortality because he understands what they're like right he knows what it's like to face temptation he knows you know when you do something because you're hangry right he knows he he fasted for 40 days he knows what it's like to be you know really hungry really really uh, you know um to to be deprived of food and and how that can maybe make you want to react i'm not saying he gave in to those impulses but he understands he can be a compassionate fair righteous judge because he knows what it's like, because he was mortal. Uh, you know, he, he he lived a, you know, life here on earth. Um, the other thought that I have is that maybe we should read this as implicitly meaning all these things are done uh, that a righteous judgment might come upon the children of men without condemning them all to eternal hell. Uh, I think that's consistent with what follows in verse 11, which starts with, for behold, and then talks about the atoning blood of Christ covering those who don't, who who never learn the law, who never learn about sin and things like that. Um, But this this idea that it starts with for behold in verse 11, right, is kind of announcing that this is an explanation to what was just said. Um, Basically, without the atonement, without Christ's death and resurrection and his atoning sacrifice, a just uh, a righteous judgment uh from the lord means we're all condemned right N- because you know uh you know none are righteous no not one right uh, i forget which passage it, it is in scripture that says that but t- something to that effect but we're all condemned without the atonement uh, it, uh according to a righteous judgment and so but the lord doesn't want to condemn us all he wants to be able to forgive us he wants to be able to extend mercy and compassion, and he wants to ultimately be able to save us, to provide salvation so that we can have eternal life. Um, and, uh, in order to do that while maintaining a righteous judgment, the atonement was absolutely necessary to come in and cover us, which is now that I mentioned cover, that's the actual meaning of the word kippur at, uh, at its, at its origins, at its root, um, or at least that's what most scholars think. The idea is that the atonement covers the gap between us and God. And uh, that is necessary in order for there to be a righteous judgment, uh, but also salvation to be provided. Uh, so those are just some thoughts uh, along uh, along those lines. Uh, Michael Christensen uh, admits that uh, this is a more speculative question. But says Benjamin gave his talk around 124 BC, and Abinadi died around 148 BC. What are the chances that the angel who visited Benjamin in Mosiah three was the departed spirit of Abinadi? Uh, He admits uh, Michael says there's no way of knowing for sure, but it's a it's fun to imagine the joy this prophet would feel in being assigned to give a similar message to Benjamin to pass along to his people, knowing this time it would be well-received by all who heard it. I agree. Fun thought. Uh, as you noted, though, this is very speculative, uh, and there's there's definitely no way to know for sure. I'm not going to try to assign odds or chances, say what the chances are um, of what it could be, uh, but it is worth maybe pointing out that researchers have noted similarities between King Benjamin's message and, and Abinadi's message. Um, uh, one place to go for this. The, the only place I can think of off the top of my head anyway, is, uh, John Hilton, the he has a paper on this, uh, called Abinadi's legacy. Well, it's not specifically on this. It's on, uh, several places throughout the book of Mormon where it appears Abinadi has had influence, including King Benjamin's speech. Um, but it's titled King Benjamin's Leg- legacy and it's in the book, Abinadi, he came among them in disguise, it was published by, uh, BYU's, uh, Religious Studies Center, uh, just a couple of years ago. I don't think it's available online for free just yet. Um, and, uh, uh, Hilton cites a couple of other people who have talked about this, but I think he's provided the most detailed study and list of parallels, uh, between the two. So it's a really useful resource on this. Um, Hilton offers a few different explanations and talks about some explanations that other people have mentioned before. Uh, as to how this happened. One is, Abinadi and Benjamin actually knew each other um, when, a bit, when Benjamin was younger. Uh, while Benjamin's speech isn't until 124, that's at the end of his reign as king, and we don't know how long he was king and uh, uh, whatnot, but uh, he may have, as a younger man, had known Abinadi. We don't really know where Abinadi comes from. We're just told he comes among the people uh, in, uh, Mosiah 11 and, uh, is it 10 where he's first mentioned? I think it's Mosiah 11 is where he's first mentioned and then he makes his second return in, in Mosiah 12, but we're just told he came among the people and, uh, we don't really know where he came from. He may have come down to them from the land of Zarahemla and might have known King Benjamin and, uh, maybe they had shared ideas. Maybe they had influence on each other or Abinadi had an influence on Benjamin Maybe Abinadi was Benjamin's teacher. Maybe he was uh, uh, the tutor for the, the royal family. I don't know. Uh, who knows what uh, what that role was? There's a lot of different ways we could speculate about this. Um, maybe they both learned from a common source. Maybe they're both members of uh, the royal, uh, you know, maybe Abinadi was also part of the royal family in some way, and uh, they both learned from the same uh, teacher from uh, as they were growing up. Who knows? Um some have suggested that uh, the same angel visited Benjamin and also visited Abinadi and taught them uh, things and so they got uh, similar teachings because they were learning from a similar divine uh, you know the same divine uh messenger. And uh, and yes some have speculated that Abinadi himself was in fact the angel that visited uh Benjamin uh, all, uh, all interesting possibilities, all just as speculative as the next. Uh, so, you know, just take your pick as to which one uh, sounds most interesting to you. Um, all right. Uh, now there are a couple other questions. I don't usually mention questions I don't plan to answer, but I am just going to briefly mention both Michael Christensen and James Wright asked questions pertaining to Mosiah four, uh, from Michael Christensen and Mosiah five from James Wright. Uh, That is next week's uh, material, and James Wright even admitted he was trying to cheat, but uh, I will answer those questions, or at least I'll put them in in the queue to be answered alongside uh, other questions that are asked uh, for next week, and uh, hopefully get get you some answers to those questions then, but I'm not going to address them now, we're just going to stick to Mosiah uh, 1-3, through and with that, I believe I have covered everything, at least everything I had time to uh, prepare for. Uh, as usual, uh, I would encourage you to check out, if you haven't already, our app, Scripture Plus. Lots, lots, lots more uh, really interesting uh, insights uh, than than what I can give you here uh, in this brief Q&A session. Uh, so I, I would encourage you to download Scripture Plus. Uh, if you haven't already, dig in, use, use that to dig into your scripture study each week for Come Follow Me. And uh, yeah, thanks for the questions, and I hope you guys have a good weekend.